right, author of Hidden History, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, and Survival of the Richest, Donald Jeffries separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp-infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. And welcome to I Protest. This is Donald Jeffries. Starting with just a little latest become our want. That seems to be a routine here. I'm sure the audience comes to expect that. So sorry for being a few minutes late. Um, my guest today, we're going to be talking Columbine, the shooting in Columbine back in 1999. Uh, the guest today was a student of Columbine. She was there and she witnessed everything firsthand. Her name is Jennifer Small Thompson. Uh, really glad to have her here. She's been speaking out over the years, which is pretty courageous. As a lot of people uh, aren't willing to do that when these incidents come up. Uh, and through, uh, Chris Graves is also here, as I'm sure. Everyone who listens to the show knows Chris. He's been a researcher extraordinaire, has helped me out so much, and now he's starting on his own podcast career as well. So he's going to be here. He knows a lot more about Columbine than I do, so he'll be asking a lot of the questions. So, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So it's uh, where we begin on this. Well, before you know, I let Chris come in and ask a lot of these uh, questions, or which are going to be minutia. It probably I, the audience might not be familiar with. Explain how you, you were, I believe, uh, were you a, a sophomore at the time? How Explain where you were when Columbine occurred in 1999. You were a student at Columbine High School, but I guess start from there. Like what, what, where you were at the time and go over the events, I guess. Well, um, it was a day I normally ditch school, so it was weird for me to be at school that day. I was a young sophomore. I was 15 at the time. And um, uh, throughout the day, of course, I moved throughout the building, but a majority of my time was spent in a science uh, classroom with one of the teachers that passed, the only teacher that passed away, but there was a couple other teachers with us there. I see. Do you want me to tell you about my whole day there? Well, I mean, basically, because we're it's for those of us that aren't experts yeah. on this, uh, like, you know, at, at, at what time did you, you know, you're, I'm, I'm assuming you're going along and this is a regular high school day. Like most kids, you're just hey, there. Jen, you have to be. Jenna, hey, Jen, how about <laughs> we do it like uh, the last time where like I'll, I got the bullet points here, kind of like. Sure, go for it, Chris. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just want to make sure that we touch on every all the important parts without skipping over things because it's possible. It's easy to do that because there's different interesting points. Yeah. Right. Okay. Go so, ahead, Chris. Um, all right. So uh, this is uh, this is Jen Thompson, and like uh, Mr. Jeffries just said, um, she's very very brave. In my in my humble opinion, and. Basically, let's just start with how um... I could start at the smoker's pit, if that's where you'd like, because that's usually when I start my story, when I tell other people what I went through that day. OK, let's just let's just tell the audience for uh, anyone who is not familiar with Columbine. The official story is that Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were the two uh, gunmen 
on April 20th, 1999. And you actually had a run-in with Eric Harris very, very shortly before everything began. Let's start right there. Okay. Yeah, I was out at the Smoker's Pit. Uh, there wasn't as many people out there as there normally was because it was a ditch day. Most people were ditching. And my mom wouldn't let me ditch, and I was upset because she would normally let me ditch that one day a year. But I wasn't doing well in my biology class, and I had a test that day. So I had to go in and take the test. I was out at the Smoker's Pit complaining to a couple friends that I didn't want to be at school and they were telling me, well, why don't you just ditch anyway if you're having such a bad day? And then Eric, who's standing a little off to the side, like 10, 15 feet away from me, pipes in and says, not to mention it's Hitler's birthday, as if he's trying to also encourage me to uh, not go in the school, not go back to school, just go ahead and ditch with all my other friends. Which is important because later on, uh, when I was in the building, that you know, that's not who I had seen with the other gunmen. Now, I went inside from the smoker's pit um, to go talk to my boyfriend that was coming out of fourth hour. Fourth hour is just about to end, and passing period was about to begin. So I walked inside and went to the front of the building by the English hallway to wait for him to come out. As I'm standing there waiting for him to come out, I see one of the trench coat kids carrying this really heavy duffel bag in his right hand. It was making him lean to one side because it was so heavy. And, I, and, who, I took, and who was this kid's, what was this kid's name, by the way? That was, I, that was Robert Perry. He had a very distinct way of dressing he always liked to tuck his camouflage pants into his really high army boots and wear a beret on his head so um and I, he was that he was actually uh expelled from columbine too the fall prior so he right. wasn't even supposed to be in the building right and then I, I had made a mental note of him carrying this bag and walking toward the gym because I had taken weights class every semester in high school. I knew all the football guys and all the wrestlers and all those people that would be working out and in the gym and rest in the wrestling room and weightlifting room often. And so I thought it was really weird that somebody like him was going to go over there all of a sudden. And later on, the cops tried to tell me I didn't see him. So I go, uh, I, I watch him walk by, the bell releases the class, my boyfriend comes out and I tell him, I just want to leave, please let me leave with you. He says, no, I know you have a test, I know you're not doing well in your class, in your fifth hour class, so you got to go to class and do your test and call me afterward and I'll probably come pick you up. So okay, he all right, left. All right. right there, Jen, I don't, mean, I don't mean to interrupt you, but... yeah. Okay, so you described Eric Harris, so you know exactly who he was, because that's right. important for later on for who the suspect that you, you saw outside your classroom. Now, the Robert Perry thing is important because many witnesses uh, in the witness statements have named him as a gunman as well in unredacted parts uh, of the final report. Now, a lot of uh, a lot of the times people will dismiss those accounts as being they saw Dylan Klebold because they had kind of a resemblance. So mm -hmm. that's also so people know that, too. So, you know, the difference between Dylan Klebold and Robert Perry as well. 
Yes, definitely. Okay, I want to make that very clear because uh, it's easy to dismiss someone's account by saying, oh, that she just saw or he just saw this, this or that. Oh, you well, know them distinct. Right. When you, well, how about you're running with Dylan Cleveland? I was just there? going to say, yeah. When yeah. I was walking down the middle hall one day during passing period, there wasn't many people in the middle hallway. And I had I was walking south and Dylan was walking north. So, you know, we were looking at each other walking down the hall. And he's dressed in all black and he. he I think he wears band shirts and stuff. So I was like, oh, he's probably in a metal too, like me. So I want to befriend this person. And I try and smile at him as he's walking by. And he glares at me like he's he wants to kill me. Like I've never seen somebody look at me quite like that. And I made a mental note, never smile at that guy ever again. And this was shortly after I had attempted to go up to the whole trench coat group where they hung out during passing period and tried to befriend them. And they shunned me and they told me that they had enough friends. And so it kind of seemed like they wanted to stay loners or, you know, so you in their were, own little group. Shunned by, shunned by the shunned by the shun. That, that seems yeah. a strange attitude for people who are being picked on. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah, they actually picked on people themselves, right? Because the media yeah. kind of blew it up as they were the they were the bullied and only the bullied, right? They actually gave as much as they took, right? Uh, I I didn't witness all of it, but after a while, yeah, they went to a dark place. And like I said, Dylan, I, he looked at me like he wanted to kill me, and I never wanted to be anywhere around him ever again. You know, like avoid that person. He is scary. You know, and he wants to be scary. He thinks it's funny. And um, okay. you know, these, they, um, the morning announcements, uh, second period every morning, there was the morning announcements. And at the end of the video announcements, there would be a quote for the day. And since Dylan and Eric were uh, the video producers and, and in charge of that part of the class and uh, across the building and the video lab, uh, they put up the quote of the day that day they chose it and they put it in German and only the German exchange student could tell what it said. And even though she was a good girl, never ditched, she ditched as soon as she read that quote because it said, prepare yourselves for you're all going to die today. Wow. So they gave, wow. and they gave warning, you know, they were, they, they went to a very dark place after a while and yeah there was some bullying going on in columbine but they they weren't nice people back either so okay i just want to be clear with that okay so where i cut you off before when you were entering your, your classroom uh and also with mr sanders and you know his his act of acts of uh, heroism that day too would be great right so I went to my science class, which was on the very southwest part of the huge building of Columbine. It's a very big school. There was 2,200 people in the school that day. Uh, I went into my class to take a test, and a few minutes into the test, I uh, we heard like popping and stuff going on, but we figured it was just a senior prank going on until... Um, we heard a stampede of people going up the stairs and fleeing down the hallway. And it, I thought, oh, still a prank. You know, they're just making people run out of the cafeteria because of some, like a snake or something they brought in as a prank. 
And then I start hearing pops thinking that's paintball guns. So that makes sense why people would be running. But then the fire alarm goes off. So I go out into the hallway to see, you know, should we be running out of the building too? Or should we be hiding? What should we be doing? And there's a teacher at the end of the hallway, Mrs. Miller. And she told me, one of the teachers just came by here saying there's boys with guns. Get back in the classroom. I'm going to lock the doors. You need to hide. So right there, that teacher, Mrs. Miller, she was talking about Mr. Sanders. Mr. Sanders had been downstairs in the cafeteria on the west side of the cafeteria, right by the one exit door that is on the far west side. And he saw what was going on outside when those two boys started shooting outside the cafeteria and library. And he ran through the entire cafeteria yelling, telling everybody there's boys with guns. You need to get uh, get down, get out, you know. And he's yelling and he's running. He goes up the stairs to go tell more people. Well, the plan was Dylan would push people out of the cafeteria and then Eric would be up at the top of the stairs waiting for them to shoot them. And since Mr. Sanders was the first person to run up those stairs, he was the first person to get shot by what I believe was probably Eric with the way the official narrative goes. I'm not sure because I was told there are, there are witnesses that have named uh, a certain individual that we mentioned before as well. Okay. Yeah. And I have a lot of different friends that yeah. are other survivors that have said that they've seen other people they recognized as students with guns in their hands that were not Dylan and Eric that day. So that's why I say I'm not sure exactly who shot Mr. Sanders. But as soon as he was shot, uh, the immediate next place that he could run down was the hallway into the science wing off yeah. the main hall he was in. And he ran down that hallway and went into the classroom right next to my classroom. And our two classes, there was a door in between so we could open it without you know, anybody in the hallway getting access to our classrooms. So we had this conjoined door that everybody was kind of hiding in. And I was just on the other side of the door from where Mr. Sanders was. Uh, eventually, they asked boys to take off their shirts to put on his wounds to try and help him. And I had sat in the front row where I had the TV right in front of me and a fire blanket right in front of me hanging on the wall. And so I thought, oh, wool blanket, that would be great. That would help us a lot, you know. And I said, fire blanket to my group. And everybody looked at me like, you're crazy. There's people going by and with guns out in the hallway. We've got windows in our doors to the hallway. They can see us if we get out from behind these tables. Because I had to help flip tables to hide us. Like a barricade, right? Yeah, like a barricade. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, Don? No, I was just going to say that uh, <clears throat> those of you listening, just keep on. This is a, this is really a compelling testimony because you you were actually there, and I don't know how many other before Chris gets back to question. Have any of the other students, especially because I, I want you to talk about what you saw that maybe doesn't fit in with the official narrative. That's just important, but it takes a lot of courage for you to be doing this. Or is anybody else that was there that day? Has anyone else talked about this, or are you the only one? Hello. Uh, I see her. I see her. She's still there. Jen, are you, you there? Oh, no, I just oh, see God, us. Right when I broke any <laughs> Yeah, let me see. 
I guess by texting her, but uh, if you have her thing, maybe text her and see what's going on. Um, <clears throat> Again, Jen, if you can hear, hear us, uh, just uh, try to, uh, we lost you, so maybe you could just. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. Re redo uh, what you did to, uh, to enter the thing before. You might have to go come out and go go back in. Yeah, she's okay. She might know that. She might not be coming back in. Okay. No, anyhow. So this it's, it's, this is amazing. And uh, before Which, she comes like back in, talk about Well, no, I was just going to say. To me, this is like the nine eleven of school shootings. Like this one, the media and mm -hmm. the politicians zeroed in on this one for some some reason, and they dwelled on it, but not on the details uh, like what. Jen's gonna uh, describe. Yeah, that's what's amazing about it is it because I mean I you know from me writing Hidden History Three and you helping me with it that uh, how few people that you can get to talk that were associated with any of these events. So she's really uh, there unusual were a lot that regard. Of, if you read the not just from talking to Jen, but if you actually sit down and you go through the thousands of pages, which I, I have over the years. You can see the uh, investigating officer when they're, you know, questioning the witnesses. They're kind of they're trying to get them to bend to assert to the official sure, narrative. That's, that's standard. And from what I understand, there was a lot of intimidation. So Jen is very, uh, very brave. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll see what's happened there. Oh, I see Australian Ben showing up here. It's, you know, with that YouTube, I get, I get none of the comments. I'm trying to get in that damn Rockfin chat room, and I can never so. Oh, I got the Rockfin chat right now. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, you've seen anything interesting there. Let me. Uh, Australian Ben says, hi, Donald. The good news is I got a notification that your show was on. Well, that's good because a lot of people don't. <laughs> Talk about my shadow, my shadow banning all the time. It's ridiculous. And I, I don't know how YouTube is going to, how long, this has been over a month before when they did this to me. They, they went a couple weeks and I've posted no other medical misinformation or whatever, you know, whatever they're looking for. False narratives. But uh, they, uh, they're they just, they're holding tight. So I don't know. It's a shame because I get a lot of good feedback on YouTube when they get to it. But uh. but I can actually, uh, I can say like, well, we're, hopefully uh, Jen's coming back. Um, yeah, let me tell there, you. There was a, uh, a witness <clears throat> that was also courageous named uh Kristen long kruger and she she's mm -hmm. actually the only one who uh has written a book and yeah. she goes in and near the end of the book she goes in and describes uh a third gunman oh, okay and i see you're right it looks like yeah. okay so Kristen kruger is also very courageous and she basically she said that she knew eric harris dylan klebold and this other person and she knew that this other person wasn't supposed to be at the school at all. Mm -hmm. And that's how she could tell the difference. And that was the one that wasn't supposed to be in the school was the one shooting at her and used to be a neighbor of hers. So right. her and um, and Jen really are the, the only oh, ones cool. that publicly. You know. Jen, Jen, we lost you right when I asked you that question. Or is, or, or you, can you hear us? I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me all right? Yes, yes, we're here. So okay. sorry to inter interrupt you. So I don't know where we got. I think I had just asked. Well, her. well, Don, Don, you were asking her if uh, other people have. Yeah, other and, and Chris kind of answered that. Yeah, were intimidated. Yeah, 
Yeah, there was uh, uh, initially about 100 people that saw a similar person that I saw. They described Mm -hmm. them very similarly that I did. And Mm -hmm. uh, most of them were convinced or pressured anyway, coerced to change their story by police Mm -hmm. saying when you're in a traumatizing situation later on, it's hard to admit when you're wrong. And they liked repeating those those exact words. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, people are thinking these are 15, 16, 17, 18 year old kids listening to the cops. And they're like, well, the cops have been doing their jobs for a long time. They know what they're talking about. So we should just go with what the cops say. But there's, you know, at least a dozen of us who were saying, I'm not going to change my story because I know what I saw. I'm okay. Not gonna- well, let's go into let's go before that because that's compelling too. Uh, when you actually do uh, deal with the Jefferson County Police later yeah. on, let's actually go into right now uh, what you actually what you saw that that is against what the official narrative is. So the I had seen a guy out in the hallway talking to Eric, or they wanted me to think that the guy out in the hallway was Eric talking to Dylan. Dylan had his back to my door with the window in it and I could see them talking to each other. And when this guy first walked up to talk to Dylan, I thought he was help. I thought he was there to save us. I thought he was military. He was in his late twenties, early thirties. He was very buff. He had a buzz cut. And I, I thought, Oh, this guy's a cop that took his uniform off and he's here to save us. And I even told my group that. And then when he held up his hands to say, I don't know what this tan shot off shotgun in his hand, I was, my heart sank. I didn't, I knew he wasn't help. And I knew he was in on it and working with Dylan as a gunman. And they want, they really want to try and convince me that the person that I saw talking to Dylan was Eric, but I had just seen Eric. I had just talked to him. 35 yeah uh, like not even hour ago uh, you know an hour before i had seen this guy out in the hallway i had just talked to eric i know what he looks like i'd seen him in passing period i've tried to go up and befriend the group before you know i, I know what these people look like and this guy was not a student at all he i was thought he, he was a he cop like he was in his 30s too yeah Yeah, I even said that in my very first written statement. I gave like six or seven statements as soon as I got out of the school. And I was given a very small piece of paper to write my three and a half hours of accounts down. So I shortened it up, but I made sure to mention this guy that I saw that was in his late 20s, early 30s, spiky, uh, strawberry blonde hair, very very defined face, very chiseled face. Um, his neck was very wide, uh, like a linebacker or something. And his biceps were so big that his white T-shirt with no pocket, just a regular white under T-shirt, his little short sleeves were very tight around his biceps. And he was not wearing a a uh, gun harness or whatever uh, around his shoulders like Eric was. You could look at pictures of Eric in the cafeteria that day, and he's wearing that strap around his back that's like a figure eight shape. Yep. This guy was not wearing that, and you can see the difference as well, not just with the scrawny neck, but with the way the sleeves 
hang on Eric's arms. His arms are not aren't that very big. They're very skinny. It was baggy. The shirt's baggy. This other guy, his shirt was not baggy at all. And when you look at that picture and see how baggy it is, you can tell there's no way that this kid would be mistaken for some big burly guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and he had the and the and Eric did not have spiky spiked hair, right? At all, right? No, he was was usually short and blonde and kind of slicked back. I mean, uh, it it was a similar color and similar cut, but not the exact same. This guy looked like he had just got out of the barber's chair in the military base, you know? Yeah. Okay. That's why I thought he was help because he he looked older and he looked like he was military and he looked like he was, you know, I thought he was in on it like a SWAT guy because I had seen all kinds of SWAT guys outside my classroom out in the parking lot because we had a big, uh, one of our walls was a big window, just almost floor to ceiling the whole wall. And we would look out there and watch the SWAT guys outside. And that's why I thought he was help because he was not a student and he was too old you know to be you know a senior but before before all that happened when when where were you at the time that the actually you knew a shooting was going on because i mean how long did it take the swat teams to get there it seemed again from what i've what i've read like it seemed like there was a huge response, wasn't there? Were there were there people that should maybe not have been there there was a stand down order going yeah there was yeah yeah, yeah. so, but so, what, where were you when you first heard? When you first know something's going wrong there, uh, do you hear shots? Where are you in proximity to the shooting, and what, what, you know, what was it like then? I was just uh, a very short distance away from where a majority of the shooting was happening. In fact, I had a pretty good vantage point of the cafeteria, and cafeteria. I could also see. I could see. I was in the science wing. But I could see the cafeteria, the whole south side of the cafeteria and the main entrance, as well as some windows into the library. I was right pretty much at the top of the stairs of the cafeteria. I was one classroom away from being at the very top of the, of the cafeteria steps. So I wasn't very far away from a majority of it because the library was right on top of the cafeteria on the second floor. So... It was not that far away. I was sitting at my desk um, close to the door to the hallway in the front row. And I was like 10 questions into my test. I'm doing great. I'm so happy. I'm going to do great on this test and get a better grade. And then all of a sudden my test no longer matters because I'm hearing this popping and I'm hearing people stampeding up the stairs at about 11.21, 11.22. So about five minutes into class. And then I, you know, as soon as the fire alarm went off, um, the fire alarm had gone off because uh, right after the stampede of people rushed up the stairs, one of the propane bombs at the bottom of the stairs went off. And it was such a big boom and uh, it lifted the floor beneath me six inches, according to the police. I wasn't sure if the wing was going to collapse when that first happened. You know, what, what, what you caused that, that? What caused the bomb to go off? That was just one of their many bombs. They had. Oh, oh they, they left it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This okay. Around, the, well, around this time, Don, there was actually witnesses that had seen or heard 
shooting and explosions going off simultaneously in the library and the cafeteria. Yeah, and Columbine was actually not supposed to be a school shooting. It was actually a failed bombing. They wanted to kill us with fire. They were talking napalm and lighting the school on fire and killing everybody inside with fire and then killing anybody who was able to escape from the fire with the guns. Because originally they were going to stay at their car, right? And they were going to pick people off with the guns. And they were also, they also had a plan to, they had like 87 bombs and some of them were found in the trunk of one of their cars and the way that they had lined them up, uh, I was told by police that it seemed that they were trying to start a chain reaction by blowing up one car and start blowing up all the cars in the parking lot as a sort of domino effect. So they had really grand uh, plans for what they wanted to accomplish that day. And that's why I believe Dylan was so upset when he was outside my door and that other guy was trying to calm him down because it wasn't all. Now, Jen, do you think that the guy that you saw who i i refer to as mr spiky for still lack of, yeah yeah in your opinion do you think that the adult shooter had something to do with eric and dylan's deaths in your opinion can you hear me yeah okay can you hear it can you yeah hear it? jen in, in your opinion do you think that the adult shooter had something to do with eric and dylan's deaths I think it's definitely possible, especially since uh, Dylan was um, his fatal blow to the head was supposedly done by himself, but it was on the wrong side of his head. Yeah, he was left handed, yeah. but the gun was in the right hand and he had right. uh, it was the left temple. That happens a lot in these cases. <laughs> yeah. where they <laughs> yeah. Or shoot themselves twice in the head. OK, well. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, so so you're there, you're close to the shooting, but I'm interested, you said you saw the SWAT teams, and much, I'm no expert on this like Chris is, but uh, what I was uh, intrigued by from the beginning was that uh, certainly some suspicious activities on the part of law enforcement here, and I know, I think it was the sheriff or something that was really involved for a long time. It, was kind of, yeah, it, it, yeah. it, it got federalized uh, apparently like right away because they had. Yeah, tanks. that's what I'm saying. I, yeah. That, then, stuff. I saw uh, pictures of a NATO truck out front. Yeah. Now, yeah. That's what you're talking about. In the United States. No, you know? I mean, it's, and this, this is what, you know, this is very similar to what we saw in the JFK assassination with when Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested in the, the Texas theater where they had so many people there that shouldn't have been there. They had high-ranking military officials. I mean, they can't find out about things things that quickly. So something like a school shooting, it seems like there was a lot. And then, but then, Jen, I want you to try because- There were were cops at Eric Harris's house at 11.30 when the shooting started at 11.19, 11.20. So who tipped them off? You know what I mean? It's the same kind of thing. Well, yeah, it was because it, but, of Brooks Brown. I believe that's because of Brooks Brown, because my friend Brooks Brown was in the parking lot, uh, one of the you know, student parking lots on the south side of the building, and he was trying to have a cigarette, and he ran into Eric, and Eric said to Brooks, I like you now. Get out of here. When Eric had been threatening Brooks's life for the past two years, and Brooks his family was trying to get um, the police involved with Eric because of Eric's psychotic behavior. 
And so they had a couple of years where they could have kind of prevented the shooting and they listened to the Browns. But anyway, Brooks they was lost, told- They lost the affidavit to search the Harris residence and they covered it yeah. up. Yeah, well, and then Brooks, you know, heard- you know, when he was outside, he after Eric said, I like you now, get out of here. Eric took him seriously as, you know, something's about to go down. And if it's involved with Eric's with involved in this, then it's going to be something really bad. So he booked it. Uh, I don't know if he ran. I think he ran down the street to the local gas station. And well, he went to a couple payphone. of houses and uh, actually yeah. started okay. some, uh, some mothers and stuff. And then finally got someone to, yeah. to use call 911. Yeah. But he was in a panic, you know, because he knew that something bad was going to happen happened because he had been trying to warn people for but, years about this guy but, but before you see the, the thing the, i was I, talking about with the harris residence was a gas was a gas leak that someone called in anonymously and the cops were already en route to his house when brooks had his encounter that's what i mean it, yeah like, something I mean, fishy it, about the whole thing yeah well it, it sounds like a lot of the strange things are going on but before you so say after you hear the shots you're that close to the cafeteria before you see this incongruent guy that uh, looks like he's an older guy from the military, that's definitely not uh, Harris or Klebold. Uh, before you see this, uh, what? How quickly did this these SWAT teams and everything? How what was the response time there? And talk a little bit about because that's what the criticism is, is that they they either I mean I've heard they didn't do really anything, kind of like the Uvalde police, or that maybe they were shooting and killing people themselves. I mean, what? How what long were you in the classroom, Jen? I was, yeah. I was in the classroom. I, st I walked in at about 11, 15, well, you know, probably 13, 14, because I didn't want to be late for class. And I didn't get out. SWAT didn't come get us until 2.57. However, I was looking outside the window, my big window, looking out at the parking lot and part of the cafeteria and the part of the library windows that were getting all jacked up from people clamoring on the curtains and things, trying begging for help. Um, the, the cops, um, the, a lot of cops showed up right away. Jefferson County Sheriff's Department, a lot of them showed up, uh, paramedics and fire trucks within probably even 10 minutes. I looked down, uh, there's a hill that I had a good, I was on the second floor, so I had a good vantage point. And I looked uh, about a mile south, there's a hill that I could see the top of and that intersection had been blocked off by fire trucks very quickly. And then shortly after that, I'd say another 20, 30 minutes later where there was SWAT in different places around the parking lot. There had been kids on a rooftop right next to one of the parking lots, the student parking lots. So SWAT told those kids to get down and then they got up on one of the roofs. Another one was propping his gun on the hood of one of the kids' cars in the front row of the parking lot. They had armored trucks going by. Um, but the only time I ever saw any cops exchange fire was our personal, our school's RSO. That officer was exchanging fire with a gunman in the library where the glass had already been broken out. And it didn't last very long, but he was the only person, the only cop I ever saw open fire. And that footage well, disappeared too, because the CNN yeah. had that. Well, it, Chris and both of you. So for, again, for the audience who doesn't know, it, my again, my impression is there's a lot of fishy stuff going on there. But 
So the official story is that um, Harris and Klebold, uh, I guess at least one of them killed themselves, both of them killed themselves, whatever, or they claimed that cops killed the other one. Is that the official story? No, they tried to, originally they, they were supposed to kill themselves, and then the cops tried to change it that Eric shot Dylan and then then himself. Oh, okay. So, either with the okay, so, so, so at any rate, they weren't shot by police, so... It, while the shooting is going on, so because it, it sounds to me like Dan, you said you were in there for eleven something, and then they didn't let you out until two fifty six. So the, you were there three for hours. three three hours. So uh, why wasn't a sweep made of the school? Why weren't students evacuated? Anybody there question why you were there for so long? They said that they didn't know who was the threat. They said that they thought that there were multiple threats and they didn't know who was the threat and they had to treat us all like we were a threat until they could get us out into this back parking lot and frisk us one by one. So they just, they we were on with uh, the teacher that was dying, one of the students had a, nine, had a cell phone, so they called 911 on that cell phone and they stayed on the line with dispatch the, for the entire time until SWAT came in the door and they knew where we were. We described it perfectly. I kept putting my hands up on the windows so that we could draw attention to us saying, we're up here. We need somebody to come get us. We put yeah, a helicopter sign. came out of nowhere. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. There was a sign that said uh, there was a dry erase board that we got and we put in the window and it said one bleeding to death because Mr. Sanders had been shot so badly. He was fading away. And I put my hands on the glass to get more attention to say, come help us. We're up here. This is where we are. And uh, 85 K away, this guy named Al Verlay, this helicopter pilot saw my hands and I told my class, this helicopter is getting really close. And they just told me to shut up. It's media. They're trying to get a picture of what's going on. And then the next thing we know, he almost crashed into us. He dive bombed right where I was, where I'd put my hands on the glass. And he got so close to us, it rattled the windows and the whole building on that side. And the whole class or the whole group, you know, looked at me like, okay, well, that was a little <laughs> close. It was very traumatizing. We thought was, they were going to crash into us. That was the news chopper. Don. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, was, so, 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 no. So, you this teacher who you you, you act, said acted heroically. He uh, he's bleeding out there. So he he was never given medical treatment. He died because they didn't get done or wouldn't get done. Yeah, oh, they yeah. Uh, they they could have saved him. Yeah, uh, so they asked boys to take off their shirts, and they tried to help them with that. And then I said, fire blanket. Nobody was willing to go get it. Everybody was a coward. So I took off my knee-high leather boots and ran across the tile floor to go get it. Got the TV remote on my way back so we could watch that on mute, because even though the fire alarm was going off the entire time, we didn't want to bring attention to our room. So uh, you know, when I took, I got that fire blanket to Mr. Sanders, I probably gave him a little bit more time, but they they uh, moved him about 50 feet maybe and then he proceeded to die um, just as I was getting out of the building myself uh, which was mm -hmm. just after three because I needed help getting out of the building they told me when they came into our room SWAT came through and they said everybody we're treating everybody like a threat put your hands on your head uh, interlace your fingers, no talking, walk in a single file line, follow the SWAT guy, stop at the last SWAT guy. 
And so we go, as we're told, we wait at the cafeteria landing in between the main stairs until they can get everybody out of all the different classrooms out. And then we're in this big group go single file into eight inches of water down in the cafeteria because the bomb went off down there setting off the sprinklers. So -hmm. the sprinklers had been going off the entire time, those three and a half hours. And when I got to the door, I'm standing, I'm walking through this in glass. There's glass there. And all I have is socks on my feet because they wouldn't let me put my boots back on. It would have taken me just a few seconds, but they said we had no time for that. Now, they saved my boots from getting water damage because they're leather, and I could still have them today. But when I got to the door, I couldn't get out. And there's a SWAT guy standing there with his big M16 and all his gear and everything looking tough and scary. And he doesn't want to look at me because he's like, I can't help you. You got to figure it out. I can't help you. And so I, I'm watching the group dwindle down and most everybody's getting out in my group, but me and I can't get through. And they're like, why aren't you going? I'm like, I can't, I don't have shoes on. And the second I walk in that glass, I'm going to need somebody to carry me because my feet are going to get torn up. Mm-hmm. And so they went outside and they told the teacher yet again, Mrs. Miller. Oh my God, my savior that day. I don't know what I would have done without her. I probably would have died without her and Mr. Sanders. Because she came back inside and she gave me a piggyback ride. And she, this frail, 84-pound, skinny little old lady, came back and gave me a piggyback ride. And when I got outside, she, you know, went to go put me down. And I looked at the ground to make sure I wouldn't step on any glass. And I had to make sure I didn't step on Danielle Rohrbaugh. He had died before he even hit the ground. He, He just fell over in a slump. And he was right outside the door. And now, then, Jen, yeah. now, Jen, now it brings us to another uh, the moved bodies. crucial thing. Yes. You, saw bodies, yeah, hear that. Yeah. you saw bodies of people that were officially said to have been killed in the library, but you saw them in other places, right? Right. I got to the top of the stairs, and I thought I recognized the dead boy at the very top of the stairs is Corey DePooter. I, I stopped running. I took my hands off my head. I didn't. I didn't understand why he wasn't being helped until I got a a better look at him. But I didn't know if I was going to throw up. I didn't know if I was going to pass out. Next thing I know, the SWAT guy is 10 feet away from me yelling at me, go, 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 move, move, move. And then there's another kid 15 feet away from that kid. So I saw three bodies when I came out. And they told us that only Daniel Rohrbaugh and Rachel Scott died outside. And Rachel had been helicoptered off, thankfully, because I was friends with her. And I was grateful I didn't have to see her like that. But I -hmm. saw what I thought was Corey DePooter at the top of the stairs. And the skinny little blonde boy was uh, Daniel Mauser. But they told me they, they died in the library in the final report. And that they said that not only that, but they were never moved. Yeah. Wow. Well, so so you're seeing obviously, and this is where you really get into to, to my world and Chris's world because uh, we we're we're used to hearing things kind of like this, but it's still always amazing when you hear it. So you're you're a high school sophomore, 15 years old. Presumably, you don't have any conspiratorial you know inklings at that point. Uh, after seeing this, did you uh, did you discuss this with your family before you talked to law enforcement? Did you of tell course. them? You know, it looks like you're moving. Oh, by, and no. they probably said, oh, you know, come on, would you go ahead and get high or something? I mean, you're talking about bodies being moved and stuff and SWAT teams not doing anything. Those bodies are on video, by the way, too. 
You can actually see yeah, the body yeah. she's talking about on video. On yeah, news you, video. you can see it on the video of my group escaping the building that day at the top of the stairs. They might cut off the part where you can see Daniel Mauser, but you can definitely see that other boy I thought was uh, Corey DePooter. If it wasn't Corey, then it had to have been John Tomlin. But, yeah. you know, you can see it in that video. He's just to the left of the people coming up those stairs in that video of us escaping. And so you, you're... So after this happens, obviously you're, you, this had to be incredibly traumatic for you. Fifteen years old, you're you know you're. I mean, most most of us would be traumatized at any age seeing something like that, but at that age especially. So when you when you when you told your family about it or whatever, uh, what was their response? Did you tell them that you had you know you, were you questioning it already before you even talked to law enforcement? Not necessarily. I just you know I just kept telling my i had told law enforcement my statement as soon as i got out of the building as soon as we got to safety they started asking us for statements mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at the at clement park right off of pierce street uh, right where it meets up with leawood drive and then they got us into a bus and took us to the elementary school down in my neighborhood about a quarter mile away and had us do more statements verbal and written and then after six or seven statements i was finally let go and i didn't get home until 5 30 when i lived across the street about a block and a half away wow. so my mom my mom was always very supportive and she believed me every every time i told her a, uh, something you know if i told her a part of my story she believed me and she went in we had the police come to our house to do investigations twice to show me photo lineups and get my statement. Then the third time they asked me to come down to the station. And looking back, I understand why they did that because they would have the home ground, home ground advantage or whatever you want to call it, because they wanted to pressure me into changing my story and saying, you didn't see an older man with a gun. That was Eric. And we need you to change your statement so that it says that you saw Eric. Cause you had just seen him out at the smoker's pit. And we need you to say that the guy that you saw in the hallway talking to Dylan with the sawed off shotgun was Eric. And I refused and they started getting upset with me. And my mom and I started get wondering why are they getting upset with me for mm -hmm. ch not changing my story for sticking to what I say I saw. And then my mom even asked them. So the Jefferson County Sheriff's department was the only people uh, holding the, cafeteria videotapes of that day in their possession yet somehow they got leaked to the press and she's like well how did that happen you know that mm -hmm. that had to be like a cop doing that right it had to be somebody mm -hmm. in jeffco doing that and now you're asking my daughter to change her story what is going on here and i you know i wouldn't change my story so another cop came over to this guy's desk this other officer's desk and he tried to coerce me and pressure me into changing my story as well and i refused so there's a part in the final report that even <laughs> mentions it that it says it seems as though at one point nancy and jennifer were questioned questioning the credibility of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. And I say, yeah, we were. Of course we were. <laughs> and when reason. I read that, when I read that, I was like, oh, oh man, I, I hope I uh, get to meet this person one day. Because right, giving it right back to them and they write it in the actual report was awesome. Well, you had you had balls, a 15-year-old girl doing that. That's incredible. And your mother said, by you, that's great. Because a lot of, a lot of uh, parents would have uh, just said, come on. With the story, you know, we don't want trouble believing. Read a lot of people. Too, Don. 
Yeah, well, so so tell what so you, you what so obviously Chris is talking about your phone's being tapped. What were the ramifications? Because we know about police corruption, and it's it's you know systemic, and it's it's everywhere. And they've they've this was this, you weren't this wasn't something where you were disputing a an illegal U-turn or something. This was tied to a shooting that was nationally reported. Lots of other questions about it. So what happened afterwards? You're still a teenager. Uh, would, were, were you threatened? Were you, were you, Chris said your phone was, were tapped. I mean, how did the, the police try to, when you started to drive, were they out looking for you to give you tickets? I mean, what happened after this? Well, they didn't try and ticket me or follow me when I was driving around or anything like that. But uh, because I lived so close to the school that day, that day they had commandeered our phone line and taken it over for Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. So anytime anybody called my house, they thought that I was dead because they kept getting Jefferson County Sheriff's Department every time somebody anybody called wow. my house. I even got a friend from uh, that flew out to Tibet that called me that day before I got home. I don't know how she did that but she called me before I even got home from across the world. But my phone was, um, they had commandeered it, and I don't think that they had ever taken uh, whatever tapping or whatever device off of it once they had commandeered it, because anytime we would use our phone, we would hear these weird tapping, like, clicking noises and beeping noises when we're talking to somebody and we know it's not somebody else on the landline too making noises or anything because it, it, it happened all the time and we even confronted them about it and they said it's not us and who do you think it would be like who why who do you think this is and my mom said i think it's somebody who is empathetic to these kids that shot up the school Mm -hmm. yeah well well what, what well after all this time like what what did you start to think and I, i'm curious as to how you, uh, chris and you hooked up in, in terms of well, she, she actually she met two uh, she met three uh ex jeffco police officers that gave her some advice too right okay, i had been we'll, we'll talk about that yeah i was a bartender and cocktail waitress at a local pool hall and i was very friendly with my customers and people would often ask each other and getting to know you questions. What high school did you go to? And I'd tell people you only get two questions after that, but these guys were nice. <laughs> I talked to them more than two questions, you know, and they said um, that they were former Jeffco officers. And the reason they quit was because they didn't want to be a part of the cover up. And mm -hmm. I had told them about the, the police wanting me to change my story about who I saw. And just, and I told them about who I saw that day, both the two guys I was told I didn't see. And, and they Perry said, and Mr. Spikey. yes, exactly. And they said, yeah, well, if you, you shouldn't write a book about it. If you write a book about it, you could easily meet an unfortunate accident. And these guys are different people, different personalities, different ways of talking. And they all said those key words you could easily meet an unfortunate accident if you do. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, this is supposed to be hush, hush, quiet. Nobody's supposed to know this. Mm -hmm. Well, do you worry about, I mean, you're, you're talking about it now. I mean, you were, we were talking about uh, what, um, 23 years later. But, I mean, do you, uh, did, did you ever receive any threatening phone calls or anything like that over the years? And do you, have you ever been fearful? Because you you aren't shy about speaking out, and I'm, I'm amazed at your courage. Because a lot of people are. Most of the people, believe me, I, I you know try to contact Chris. Chris really helps me out with research. Uh, but 
I try to contact people associated with JFK assassination, 9-11, Oklahoma City, which this reminds me, Chris, of uh, the guy yeah. she's talking about. This is it's almost the John Doe number two situation. Yeah, that's you know, what I always and, thought too. And, and Oklahoma City, boy, it was they badgered so many witnesses. You did not see this guy. This guy. He was he was yeah. Terry Nichols, you know, same kind of thing to try to tell you this is Terry. So so talk about what happened after that and how how you've been able to to stay courageous. I mean, maybe you weren't threatened or anything, but it's amazing that you're still willing to talk about all. And, and, the, yeah. and the PTSD, she was able yes, to overcome. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have any direct threats. Some of my friends got threats. Um, one of my friends that was with me that day got a threat from a guy out in Florida so bad that he actually did prison time for it. But I personally didn't get threats after it like that. I tried to stay away from um, the media and stuff because they were like vultures. They didn't care if they got the story right. They would lie all the time. They were very insensitive. So I tried to keep away from that as much as possible. Um, also, uh, looking back on the way that I responded that day versus every else that I was with. Uh, I honestly, I'm not trying to like say anything wonderful, great about me, but I, I believe I'm of a different breed where everybody else gets scared in a situation and I don't let fear take over. I, I know that I have to do what is right, do what is right and don't let fear take over and stop you from doing what is right. Like I did the, that day and got the fire blanket for Mr. Sanders. And I feel like telling the truth and sharing it with other people, that's the right thing to do. So, yeah, it, it, it might be dangerous, but I haven't gotten any real threats to make me think that it is quite so dangerous. Uh, but at the same time, like I said, it's just so important to me. I highly value the truth. And I think people oh, deserve to know. Yeah. Well, I wish more. I wish more people were like you. But uh, so when you, the things you saw, the the guy with the crew cut, the older guy, the John Doe number two kind of kind of they clearly wanted to you know, wanted to get your attention away from, uh, and the bodies being moved, which is really huge, because that that speaks of something very strange going on. You're not you and don't go the military. The bizarre military presence too. That yeah, she there, actually saw that after. Yeah, yeah, I was right after I got out of the school, they brought us the long way. I don't know why they called it our safe path through dead bodies and the super long way when we could have gone the short way if we just went east. Mm -hmm. But we get over to the park. We finally mm -hmm. get over to Clement Park at about 4 p.m. That's when I finally got away from the school. And I'm sitting on this hill watching. Um, there's all kinds of cops and fire trucks and paramedics and, you know, FBI. ambulance that are open. And when I look down the street right in front of the school, there is CBI, FBI, bomb squad, and any other organization that, you know, is got those little acronyms that they were all there. And I'm looking at all these trucks going, why, why are they here? what is the purpose? Like I understand bomb squad and the paramedics being here and the fire trucks, but why is CBI and FBI coming? And the next thing I know, I hear a lot of yelling going on, going uh, to the North, which was to my left. And I look and there's three, what I believe were tanks rolling down mm. the middle of Pierce street. They're yelling, telling guys, you got to move your squad cars or you're going to get smashed because it would smash them like a pop can. It was this triangular shape with the rolling type 
uh, you know, band or whatever going around the bottom of them. And they were huge. And they were going down Pierce Street for whatever reason. And that was not the only time I saw those either. That day, yes, I saw them rolling down the street going toward the high school. But later on, they had closed off a big portion of Pierce Street, which was a main way for us in our neighborhood to get to the grocery store. So we had to go this long way. Well, along the way, there was a tank in the middle of one of our neighborhood streets on Fair Drive at this stop sign, just blocking off Fair Drive west because that connects to the high school. That light goes straight into the teacher's parking lot for, off of Fair. So uh, I remember my stepdad was leaving like, let's get them donuts. So we stopped and we even gave these guys sitting on these giant tanks some donuts and you know tried to make jokes with them. But they hung out for a while. It wasn't just that day. They were trying to keep people away from the school. And I guess they were trying mm -hmm. to be as intimidating as possible. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. They were there for the memorial, too, a few days later when Al Gore showed up with a black trench coat on. Well, yeah, but they had been there <laughs> even after that. They had been there for months. They had blocked yeah. off that oh, street. Really? Yeah, it was blocked off until, I want to say, like mid-June when I got my belongings back. Because I didn't even get my backpack and boots and things back until... Uh, June. Were they, were they still looking for bombers? I mean, you know, what, <laughs> why would well, they? Be well, Sheriff John Stone did say that we were way outgunned in the press that day. So, two teenage boys with two weapons apiece and a bunch <laughs> of pipe bombs is uh, way outgunned, I guess. Yeah, there's 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 a lot there. I mean, we can talk about the uh, the the background of Harris and Klebold. There's some strange. There were up to eight the... shooters reported, and yeah. and the cops said it too on the day well and, and with, of course what i would and you know you know how i am we, we analyze any of these school shootings that you know lead screen shootings like sandy hook and things like that where there's always these kinds of bizarre questions but something like this what what's the theory chris like like for instance too it's uh do you, do you think harris and klebold were used i think at least one of their dads had an intelligence background or something right and uh, oh yeah wayne harris was in the air force uh he retired and they moved to uh littleton and he started working for flight safety uh, it's a company that specializes in training uh pilots mm -hmm. on in jumbo jets and that same company ended up uh training three of the hijackers on 9-11 and also in a couple of days after Columbine, Sheriff John Stone actually had a press conference where he had an excerpt from Eric's uh, notebook, or supposedly from the notebook, that detailed uh, the next part of the plan after blowing up the school. They were going to, they supposedly were going to, uh, planning on killing people in the neighborhood as they were escaping, and then somehow getting to Denver Airport and hijacking a plane and then crashing it into a high rise in New York City. And this was a year and a half prior to 9-11, 2001. Well, what, what do you, what, what is the speculation here? Because clearly it was, this was obviously something more than and Harrison Klebold because I mean, uh, Jen, and I guess maybe yeah. some others saw this John Doe number two guy there, uh, the bodies being moved, uh, the military presence, the SWAT teams coming there, the medical people not even coming in and trying to save the teacher. Uh, this is you know, kind of well, a, I'll say this. You know how you say you don't like speculation? 
Right. I don't really want to speculate too much, but the common theories yeah. uh, back in the day, like John Quinn Newshawk that you've yes. had on before. Yes, yes. yes. He, uh, he speculated that it was an MK Ultra, you know, brainwashing thing. And mm-hmm. Sue Klebold mm-hmm. actually did, did an interview where she mentioned that her and her husband, Tom, originally had thought that Eric had done something to Dylan and that he was innocent. I know it's a grieving mother, but she referred to brainwashing manuals that were, that Wayne Harris mm-hmm. had in the Harris household. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether or not after talking to, to Jen for so long about this, I mean, it seems like uh, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris weren't the nicest kids to begin with. So, mm-hmm. and maybe that would make it easier for them to do something like this, especially if it was some kind of a, you know, a brainwashing kind of thing going on where they think that they're actually living out a video game or something. Uh, I don't like to go there, but it definitely has all the fingerprints of some kind of a, a covert op or something. It, yeah. There's a reason why someone in, that was in Tibet knew about this school shooting in the United States mm-hmm. so fast before Jen even got home. There's a reason why this this event or this tragedy was zeroed in on and focused on. You know what I mean? Like kind of like... Yeah. like 9-11 was with you know mm-hmm. terrorist attacks later on right. i feel like it's like they use harris and klebold in every single one of these shootings as uh, a hero to whatever the suspect of that certain shooting was or patsy whatever you want to call it even mm-hmm. adam lanza who some people don't even think actually existed i don't right. know that yes, i have right. no idea they yep. said that he was obsessed with harris and klebold so they yes, used yes. This tragedy yeah. for every single one afterwards, and it's sickening. You know, well, so everybody and- uses Columbine synonymous with school shooting because if you say somebody pulled a Columbine, you know exactly what they're saying. Yeah, and that's exactly what I'm saying. So that's why it's easy for me to believe that maybe this was some kind of a covert op, like well, it, 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 it based mind control, like Dave McGowan used to talk about. You yeah, know, kind of like what the JFK assassination was. It, you know, Columbine, Kennedy, yeah, and broad daylight. Right. And traumatize everybody. You know, the end well, of the I, innocent. Col- Columbine seems to have set the template for all the modern shootings that, that followed afterwards. But you have the same kind of, and again, it's I, I, I don't like to speculate, like you said, Chris. And I, but I, it is what it is. And here you have an eyewitness, Jen, who has no reason to, to lie. She's a fifteen-year-old girl. She's seeing bodies being moved. She's telling, just I can just tell from her talking. And we know that you know cops can be such you know assholes and, and any it's generally anyhow but in this case you had all that police presence there but and it seems like something should have been done they should have you know charged him with their SWAT armor like you can say that a bit of Aldi as well uh why you know something should have been done there certainly the, the teacher that was bleeding out could have been saved or they should have tried to but all these things the kids happened. wanted to bring mr sanders out but the SWAT yeah. team I mean, wouldn't let them that's disgraceful and, and then and he I, died they yeah, kept him alive all this time, and then he dies once the SWAT team gets there. Tells the kids as, to yeah. get out. As soon, yeah, it was short, very, very shortly after we all got out of the classroom because um, it, we had waited until about three fifteen on that landing in the middle of the cafeteria stairs before you go all the way down the stairs. It's in the middle of the stairs as it yeah. changes directions. And yeah, he died at three thirteen in the greenhouse room, which was one of the rooms that the SWAT had escaped through. 
and they found him without a shirt on right and that would uh put anyone into shock right yeah that's it's just there's so many questions that that just come to my mind you know not being an expert on it but but the most troubling thing is again and why people from conspiracy theorists about all this stuff is because what, what what are the police doing trying to change a 15 year old girl's story from what she saw why are they yeah, so I'm adamant about that hundreds of them that actually did end up yeah. they they yeah. they wore these people these poor people down so many times mm-hmm. children the, the children and even the adults like uh another uh, uh security lady uh by the name of uh keating the FBI, yeah. when they interviewed her, she was just ready to say, yeah, fine, that's uh, sure. It's Eric Harris, the only that's who I saw. When the original witness statement, she said she saw three three people that didn't resemble Harris or Klebold at all. They wore her down until they got what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, Jen, now, Jen, you had a PTSD, and I feel like this is really important for people, right. especially in the, the times we're in that you know, everything seems to be so horrible that everyone has some kind of trauma, right, Don? Like the COVID and everything. Jen was able to figure out how to overcome years and years of the PTSD. Talk about about that. Yeah, how did that start, Jen? Well, it it started at a concert. I was VIP at a Shinedown concert. I was standing next to the stage. There was huge pyrotechnics going off about 10, 15 feet away from me. And just next to those pyrotechnics were fireworks going off. And fireworks were one of my trigger noises because it sounds a lot like gunfire. So uh, anytime I would hear any of my trigger noises like fireworks, I would get into this mass panic attack where my whole body would shake. I wanted to cry. I wanted to hide. I wanted to get away from wherever I was that was around those noises and get to safety. And it would usually take me a, a good 30 minutes, maybe an hour to finally start to calm down and I was standing there with my friend she knew why I was starting to get shaky and everything and she asked me do you want to leave do you want to go somewhere else and I said no I was at a sold-out show 10,000 people there that wished they were me standing next to the stage watching this and so I said no I'm not going to do that I'm going to fight it and I was shaking so bad that my hands went numb for about five minutes but I couldn't say I was cold because of the pyrotechnics, you know. So I decided I'm just going to stay there and take video and try and laugh about it and have a good time. And I decided right in that moment that I was done letting PTSD ruin a good time for me. So I, like I said, in that moment, I fought back against it and I stayed, I stood my ground and I enjoyed the show and I took great videos of it all. And, um, then All after without that, pharmaceuticals, right? Right, right. This is just me just randomly just standing at the concert with the fireworks going off. I didn't know they were going to go off. I'm just standing there trying to enjoy the show with my girlfriend standing next to me. And so you know, I got fed up with being re-victimized every time I heard trigger noises. So that concert changed my mind and how I responded that night flipped a switch in me where I decided that I was going to try and expose myself to my trigger noises in a safe environment with somebody I trust with my life and then 
retrain my brain to respond differently because my default was to go into that panic mode. And I didn't want that default just over fireworks or somebody dropped a, a big heavy box on or tile floors right? or a helicopter flies over my house down low. And I don't, you know, so I don't hit the ground anymore and freak out thinking I'm going back into that day again, thinking I'm, my life is in danger. So I, went into like a shooting range with my husband and had him fire his gun. And my instinct, my original default was hit the ground, start crying, look for a place to go hide. And I fought back against that. And I you know, pulled myself back up because I didn't fall all the way, but I started to. And I told myself, I'm, I'm okay. I'm safe. Nothing bad is going on right now. I don't need to respond this way. I need to respond like a normal person would and tell myself, you're okay, you're safe. Look around you. Everything around you shows you you're safe. So you need to tell your brain, you know, convince yourself you're safe. So I kept doing that with other trigger noises like the helicopters and stuff. I couldn't really control when they would come. But I would be around it and intentionally not go hide and rewire my brain to respond differently. And after a few months, I didn't have any more triggers. I don't have any more triggers. I, a little while ago, I laughed when a helicopter flew over my house and I was talking to you because yeah. it, it, it the just the, the timing was so perfect. Yeah. And then it, <laughs> it happened again just yesterday where another helicopter flew over my house down low. And had I not worked on my PTSD, it would have sent me into a huge panic. But instead, I just thought, yeah, it, it can remind me of Columbine, but I, am, I know I'm not in Columbine. I know I'm safe right now. I know I'm not hearing anything to give me reason to be scared for my life other than just hearing the helicopter. And I'm okay. I can listen to fireworks and watch fireworks shows without freaking out and getting scared. I feel like I've gotten my life back because I, you know, I felt like a victim of those boys. I thought they were getting the best of me every time my trigger would make me go into a panic attack. I thought, oh, those those boys that shot up my school are probably just loving this and so proud that they can keep hurting me, even though it's no longer happening. So now I feel like I have freed myself of that victimness, victimhood that kept being inflicted on me, and. I feel like nobody and nobody ever did tell me that you could overcome PTSD. I just had to get fed up with it and find out on my own by myself. Now I'm trying to work with, you know, counseling offices and therapists and stuff and tell them how I did it so that they can help other people do it in a safe way and overcome their PTSD too. Because like I said, nobody ever told me you could overcome it. Nobody now, did. Weren't they pushing pharmaceuticals too with that? What was it? The Columbine Cares? Uh, wasn't there an organization for uh, for victims right after the shooting that that were uh, that stepped in, like with? Uh, oh, there was lots. Yeah. There was lots of people that donated. There was all kinds of different little foundations and things. The main Columbine Foundation was for uh, rebuilding the library because we had it demolished. It's now just an atrium. But um, yeah, but I mean, like, of... weren't weren't they trying to get a lot of the uh, the people that did survive? Wasn't there a lot of, a lot of um, you know pharmaceuticals being uh, kind of handed out willy nilly without any other you know? Yeah, 
I think that they did probably give them out a little too frequently. I didn't see it too much or hear it too much, but at the same time, I know that it was readily available. And even years later, like three or four years later, when I had a brief conversation with my doctor about, you know, my experiences in the past, then he is automatically just ready to put me on antidepressants. And I, I try, and I tried one, I tried one, like he, you know, I was supposed to, I was prescribed it. I was told to take it. And I took one and this tiny little freaking Lexipro crap. uh, I took that and I felt like, Oh, this is what crystal meth must feel like. My whole body, every cell in my body felt like it was vibrating. Every little cell vibrating. And I couldn't do anything. I couldn't focus. I couldn't sleep. And I swore I would never take that crap ever again because that, that, that was one of the worst experiences ever. And they yeah. were trying to say that this is going to, it'll go away after a couple weeks. I don't want to yeah. be a nervous wreck for two weeks acting like a. You've been very uh, uh, resilient, and you you overcome. That's fantastic. I'm I'm so glad to hear that. Chris, you looked at the chat. Right? Anything happening? Any, any questions or comments in the chat room? I apologize, people are not being able to see it, but I am getting a new laptop that should be here any day, and uh, that's courtesy oh. of you guys with your generous tips. Uh, Jen, uh, there's a question for you uh, okay. from from someone named Any Word. Uh, they ask. I wonder if she ever talked to Wolfgang Halbig. Wasn't he the school safety expert for Sandy Hook? No, I have not spoken to a guy named Wolfgang. Okay. Actually, actually, what Wolfgang was involved, I believe he investigated Columbine. Well, yeah, Columbine was on his resume, yeah. 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 Okay. I I tried to stay away from the media a lot right after the the tragedy and for several years because all my friends were having these awful experiences and they were also lying a lot left and right. So I didn't really want anything to do with them for a long time. It it would take years for other media people like at the cemetery to slowly be kind and considerate and befriend me enough to make me be okay with them taking pictures and posting them on the Associated Press and things. But yeah, I didn't. I didn't like the media, so I tried to stay away from people. You know. Yeah, you actually did talk to the media once, right? Uh, for the subway murders that happened right. almost a year later with the, your friends. Yeah, my friends Nick and Steph were murdered at the subway sandwich shop a mile down the road from Columbine. They were also oh, Columbine geez. students. So mm-hmm. another shooting, taking more Columbine rebels' lives. Uh, they were a couple for two years. Even their parents knew they were soulmates. And she, uh, he died in her arms, and then she died. And they were officially, um, uh, I would say, as dead uh, at on Valentine's Day, two thousand. And so and there's speculation that they may have seen something on. Yeah, I, I was going to ask. Cold, yeah. yeah, that's a cold case. They, they know nobody knows who did it. Well, somebody knows who did it, but the people don't want to come forward because they don't want to be next. Well, there, so was actually, you, there was actually a sketch made, uh, and the sketch resembled one of the other shooting suspects that people saw on the day of Columbine. Well, did this Nick and Nick and Steph, your friends who, who were, were tragically murdered, did they? Did you talk to them? Like, were they talking about? Having seen something there, I mean, it was a logical connection there to make that hey, was this connected to it. 
I hadn't spoken to them personally about their experiences um, at Columbine that day. I, at that point, you know, 10 months later, I hadn't, I had spoken to a few people here and there, but a lot of people were just not wanting to talk about it a whole lot. I had heard from other friends that were closer to them that it sounded like they may have known more about that day and probably saw, you know, a third gunman as well, or maybe even more, saw more than I did that could get somebody into trouble. And my friends speculated that maybe that's why they were murdered. Well, it's, it's logical speculation. If, if you, if you, they're murdered in a subway shop and uh, they never solved the crime, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that gets my a spidey sense going right there. And they just have some, some speculated that it was a drug bus gone wrong, a drug deal gone wrong as well. Right, because uh, my friend Steph had reportedly sold fake drugs to somebody. So um, if that was true, I don't know. But mm-hmm. if it is true, then that would definitely, you know, be like a TV story where, yeah, that you would think that the drug addict would get upset and get violent over it. But also, Don, before uh, before the daylight came, because this was uh, when at closing time at the subway, mm-hmm. when it was just the two of them. Right. By by the time daylight came, they replaced the uh, the window that was shot out. There was a shot out window. Wow. And there's actually uh, photographs that a newspaper had where they replaced the pane of glass like pretty fast. So some people think that someone may have been shooting from the rooftop across the street. That was also brought up. There wasn't a rooftop across the street at the time. Across the street was an open field. Yeah, oh, okay. it was our bike jumps. They were starting to build houses over there um, around right after Columbine, but I don't think anybody was quite living there yet. And even still, that's that would still be you know quarter mile across the street. It was a while before the Domino's Pizza and the Rite Aid and all that were developed across the street. Because at the time when Nick and Steph were killed, it was a blank uh, open street over on the other side of coal mine. But there was other buildings in the parking lot near them, like... Um, a Chinese food restaurant and a Mexican food restaurant. So it's possible that maybe they're talking about a rooftop from the Mexican food restaurant because that's the only way that it would come in. And that would be, you know, because the, the, the way directly they had east of the building, it would be directly east of the building instead of south, which would be across the street. Because someone saw a trench coated figure running from the scene and mm-hmm. That's where the sketch comes from, the police sketch. And there was also a lot of blood found in the men's bathroom of the King Supers, the grocery Mm. store that's in the same parking lot as Subway. And um, actually, that was not really something that was released. It's Mm. something that I happen to know because I know people who saw it. Yeah, so, yeah. It must be so. Anything else interesting in the uh, chat? And I, again, I apologize to the chat room. I, I usually monitor, but if I try to do that, I'll be knocked out of thing. But again, the, the new laptop's on the way, and it's thank oh. to you guys, your generous tips. I really appreciate it. Here's something that I actually I brought up to you multiple times, Don. Uh, did you personally take the death education class, Jen? That was mentioned on 2020. Yes. I don't think I did. Okay. 
I, I got books and I, we were gifted so many things, uh, teddy bears and notebooks and you name it. They, they donated it to us from around the world. Now, I, I know that I got all kinds of little things as gifts, but. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, 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 that, that was, I think. With the woman Barbara Walter, it's covered a very you know morbid. Yeah, it was uh, it was yeah, in 1990. They had a special on 2020, and Columbine High School was the high school that they uh, highlighted. Yeah, this, the I, yeah I, I got a book. I remember I got a book, and it's it was a small book, and it was titled "When a Friend Dies," and I believe I still have that somewhere in my collection. So oh, I know yeah. that they. They didn't give us like classes or anything, but we did have um, a lot of counselors and and therapists on uh, the school grounds once we returned to school that fall. Um, one of my favorites, um, he even taught me EMDR, which helped, you know. But um, he he was more understanding, more. Uh, because all these people, they tried to act like they knew what we were going through. And this Park Street was his name. Weird name. I know Mr. Street. Uh, he was he actually would say things like, I have never gone through this. I, I don't know what this is like, but I can tell you from my experiences with other traumatized people and situations that I've experienced, you know, and helped me along with this information that he gave me. But he helped because he he didn't act like he knew what we were going through, because too many people would say, oh, yeah, I know. I know what you're going through. I understand. And that seemed like the biggest insult to people, you know. Know? And so that was another reason why a lot of people didn't want to talk about it because you try and talk about it and you'll, you could get, you know, somebody telling you that it was your fault that your friends died or that your friends deserve to die or that, you know, it, just different bad things about you or that day just because you brought it up and they no. try and act like they're a know-it-all on the situation. And then, yeah, people don't want to talk when people are treating, treating them like that, you know? Now the polar opposite well, uh, from this this uh, Mr. Street was the guy the teacher that actually left you guys behind uh, at the beginning of the shooting, right? That actually w was going to uh, fail you when you went back to yeah. school if you didn't pass in a whole bunch of assignments. <laughs> yeah, we went to uh, two weeks after the tragedy. They had us do a very weird schedule. They were trying to, they said it was to get us back to some normalcy, but it was not normal going to school over at Chatfield in these tiny little classrooms. I swear, I, I want to say Chatfield was originally built to be a prison, not as a joke. I mean, literally. And they built it into a school instead halfway through it. But um, so the classrooms are tiny. A lot of them don't have windows. They want to shove us into, you know, our full size classes into these small, smaller classrooms from 1230 in the afternoon till 630 at night every day, you know, like school days. And I go in there because they're telling us we have to go, we have to go, we have to go. And I get into my biology class and the teacher puts a stack of papers on everybody's desk, a big stack about an inch thick and says, we have two weeks to complete and get all this finished. We have to do all of our biology. And if you don't complete this booklet, you're going to fail. <laughs> and I looked at him like, 
uh-uh, screw you. I, I left the booklet there. I got up. I went to the payphone. I called my mom and I said, I need to leave. I can't do this. My history teacher, who was one of the first people to, to get out because he was on the other side of the building where the, you know, because history was opposite of where all of it was going on for a majority of that day. He got out right away and he understood that more people were traumatized than he was. And he put on Wallace and Gromit videos for those two weeks. Now, mm -hmm. I only went like two or three partial days over at Chatfield because I couldn't do it. I had been trapped in a huge classroom. It was like 35 feet by 25 feet, you know, maybe bigger than that. And then they wanted to take, uh, had a whole wall of windows and put us in these tiny little classrooms that are like 20 feet by 20 feet and, and just cramp us in when we, were, we had been trapped in these, small, in these large classrooms. And then to say, oh, this is going to be more normal for you to go to school from 12 o'clock till six o'clock at night and in a different building in these tiny little rooms. So I wasn't having it. I couldn't do it. And a lot of people couldn't, I don't blame them. You know, we were still so traumatized. We didn't want to go back yet. And it was still hard to go back in the fall, but you know, mm -hmm. we, 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 we as a community um, band together and we were stronger together. We lifted each other up and, tried to, you know, muster what we had inside of us to get the strength back to go back to school and reclaim our school. So we did that. And it, you know, it felt good to take our school back, but it was still, you know, in the fog of it all. It, it took me a good mm -hmm. year to come out of the fog from all that. It was well, so the, traumatic. The strange thing, though, is that, you know, as I'm sure you know, in recent years, uh, they, they tended to, uh, they certainly did with Sandy Hook, uh, they demolish these schools now when these things uh, ha happen or allegedly happen. But uh, Columbine, you said, the, I guess, where the lot, they have changed the uh, the cafeteria, I guess, where the, most of the shooting took place. Yeah. The they, they demolished just the library because that was a majority of where all the deaths took place. Oh, just the library. Okay, okay. Yeah. And well, the thing is, is they they did rebuild the library in a different spot. But and I believe it was 2018, maybe 2019. They were, yeah. uh, uh, the officials were talking about proposing to renovate by demolishing the current building and and starting over and i was not having it i actually spoke to some of the local media about it because i was really adamant about no i even started a facebook group calling named it uh, we don't we want columbine fixed not demolished and, you know, people after the whole debate was over, a bunch of people ended up leaving the group. So there's not a whole lot of members today. But, you know, mm. uh, even the media was interested in talking about how I had created this group because I am a survivor and I am not OK with them destroying what, you know, those boys wanted to destroy that school. And if we destroy it, that's letting them win. And it's also a real uh, it's not it's worse than a smack to the face to say you know let's try and forget that these deaths ever happened here and just try and wipe the slate clean i felt like that was a huge insult to my friends that died that day because i lost four people i know and mm -hmm. i i you know i felt like that would be a a real insult to them to just say oh let's start over and pretend like this never even happened here well, if, if you're like most people, I mean, I, most of us don't stay in contact with, you know, maybe one or two people that went to high school with, if that. 
Uh, do you do you keep in contact with it? You have a bond there, obviously. Most of us yeah. have something like that. Oh, yeah. do you, so, do you keep in contact with the people from Columbine, and and do any of them still talk about the kind of things you do? Are they still talking about what they saw that day that doesn't add up? Yeah, yeah. I've got a majority of my Facebook friends, my social media friends, are my friends from school. I've got a lot of friends oh, from cool. Cool. all the way back to kindergarten. The Columbine mm-hmm. community really uh, became more of like family once the tragedy had occurred. Uh, you know, we're we're a tight knit community where you know if somebody needs our support, we're there for them. So, yeah, I talk to a lot of my Columbine survivor friends on a regular basis, and we don't usually talk about our, you know, our survival stories that day, but sometimes they do come up. And, I, you know, over the last 23 years, I've spoken to many, 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 many other survivors from that day, and quite a few of them talk about things that don't add up, including seeing mm. Robert Perry shooting guns after he opened his duffel bag. Kristen Krueger wrote about it in her book, but she didn't name them. She said that she knew all three boys, and that's how she could tell the difference between uh, who was shooting at her and who wasn't. Right. What do do we know about this Robert Perry guy? Do we know anything of what happened to him afterwards? All I know is that he was living in Denver last I knew. Most of the the trench coat mafia people that were uh, identified by a lot of witnesses and those witness statements have just dropped off the grid. Uh, one actually was found hung, but there was a puddle of blood underneath him and uh, he had a bloody mm-hmm. nose. So some people think that maybe he was uh, take, maybe he was murdered because it was very shortly after he started talking on a Columbine message board. So that was in 2007. Hmm. And that guy was, his name was Joe Stair. Yeah, I remember seeing videos of him. And I'd seen Joe in the school before. He was kind of a snotty guy. Oh, yeah, he did an interview, too, like a couple of days after where he was smiling the whole time. After yeah, the, uh, yeah. We've seen a lot of those, haven't we? <laughs> no, no, but he was smiling in a way that he, like, it seemed like he was happy that it happened. Not like yeah. a, a yeah, yeah. Or, Smile. Like he, he, like he got away with something. Smile. Yeah. They actually, it's weird that most of the suspects that I was talking about that people saw with guns in there, most of them were hiding in plain sight by going on the news and making statements. Like Robert Perry was actually on the news. So were the other ones that I won't actually say. If people want to go and check out the uh, the witness statements. Oh. Someone in the police department wanted those names to be out there because there's a lot of parts where they're not redacted for the suspects. Hey, and you want to talk about possible people in on this cover-up? There's a name that came up yesterday that, yeah, he wasn't a student and he wasn't a cop, but the way that this man um, carries himself and the way that he talks and the things that he writes and the things that he says to a big audience, I think that there's a good chance that Mr. Dave Cullen could have something to do oh. with the cover up as well. Oh, yeah, I on his background, he's got some kind of intelligence background. Well, I, I now just, he, you know, I, now I, he's like the expert on like Sandy Hook and Parkland too. Yeah, well, I I wrote, I wrote a book, Jen, uh, uh, Bullyocracy, How the Social Hierarchy Enables Bullies to Rule Schools, Workplaces, and Society at Large. And 
I covered Columbine, but again, not from this standpoint because I, I didn't know about all this intrigue. Yeah, the shooters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but I just, I just basically saw Cullen was the main guy that was instrumental in trying to change the narrative because the narrative early on was that uh, these trench coat mafia guys were being bullied, and this was lashing back. And uh, Cullen's book attempted to change that narrative and basically. Even though I think that don't they have the videotapes and stuff of them talking about uh, the all basement tapes? Yeah, 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 really, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were talking about you know this is for you. You didn't invite me here. You know, I, you know. And of course, that's no excuse for anything. Uh, but Cullen, for whatever reason, wanted to change that narrative and act like that never happened, and just that these were just horrible, maybe his kids yeah. or whatever. He but wrote I, what they were thinking too. Like he took free. Like he took. Uh, <coughs> what's what's the word I'm looking for here? Like he actually liberty. wrote like what their thoughts were, even without yeah. knowing them. You know what I mean? <laughs> to great liberty, he did the Bob Woodward thing. How huh? that's what Bob Woodward yeah. does. Yeah. Cullen has an, wired with the Belushi there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cullen has an intelligence background. That you said. Yeah, he sent that to you a while ago, but yeah, he uh, okay. he's got a, a weird past. Um, and well, Jen, I Jen, think I Jen was mentioning it to Jen that I I think that he was he was put in that position. To be a, the mouthpiece of the official narrative. Well, tell, tell us what what you what what is your issue with uh, Cullen, Jen? You probably know a lot more about it than I do. Well, oh, yeah. um, about it was I want to say 2010, maybe maybe as early as 2009 that I started talking to him. He wanted to talk to me about you know what I experienced, who I saw that day, and who I saw doing what, and. Um, he he just acted like he knew more than me, even though I was there. He also tried to tell me I didn't see this other guy. He tried to pull the same exact words of oh, when you're in a traumatizing situation later on, it's hard to admit when you're wrong. And I'm like, oh, I drew a composite sketch and I drew I wrote it out in words of the description of this guy and I gave it to police. It is official evidence. And Dave is over here, and here Dave is trying to say he wants to interview me and talk to me about my experiences that day, and then he's trying to insult my my intelligence and tell me I didn't see what I saw and try and get me to change my story as well. He was very, very, very rude, very inconsiderate, and very cocky, and I do not like that man at all, and I don't think he's up to anything good. Well, that's you didn't hold any pull any punches and there. Also, Jeffco <laughs> hired a PR firm to actually write the final report too. Colin doesn't pull yeah. any. He's like that too. He'll he'll just flat out say things without any regard for anybody else. And you know, I, I'm not the kind of person to just lay down and take crap from people if you can't tell. So yeah, you know, <laughs> no, I got it. well. Well, there's there's awesome a reason there's a reason why he's. Uh, He's been all over the media and the mainstream media because he's he's saying what they they, they like to hear. So uh, and I, I'm sorry he's doing the JFK community like that too. They write books that for the official narrative. Absolutely, yes, we we know and love them. But so <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. But so so Chris and you, you so you started to to talk and obviously Chris knows a lot about this. So this. This must have been uh, something fascinating because Chris, I, I tell him he's got to write the book on Columbine because he knows uh, he's the he's the one to do the it. That was the Kurt Cobain thing first. <laughs> oh, that's true. Well, yeah, well, yeah. 
Well, you got to write both of them, but you, you exactly. I, I can't, but you do know, obviously, you know all, so much about Kurt. Cobain. I just want to shine a light on this thing because I feel like when 9 11 happened, a lot of people forgot about the anomalies. I don't mean the tragedy itself, yeah. but like a lot You're of right. the, uh, you know, the mo other shooters and all that, the bodies being moved. People kind of just, you know, because a war well, and terror happened and everything. And I, I remember. Distraction. Even at that time, yeah. the internet was the internet was the wild west. The internet was much freer then, circa ninety nine thousand. Yeah. And I remember reading just as a conspiracy guy, you know, I naturally was drawn to that. And I remember reading some stuff on message boards and everything. And uh, what is the guy? I, mean, I don't know if Jen knows about it, but I just remember it was either uh, somebody in law enforcement that was trying to find out something, or some some parents were. Concerned parents were, were against, maybe it was the sheriff or something. What, what am I thinking of there where they were trying oh, to, yeah. You know, yeah what, what was that, a, I remember reading about that. There was a, there was a scandal going on uh, around there with some of the uh, police departments that were in, on the scene along with like the FBI and everyone else. Um, yeah. It was a crystal meth bust uh, where it was uh, police officers having sex with minor boys for, uh, in exchange for uh, crystal meth, there was like a whole scandal and everything. Some people actually put forward the theory that Eric and Dylan may have been raped by uh, a bunch of cops oh, after being arrested, I but I never really well, bought into that well, myself. Well, that, that, well that, that's I haven't heard that before, but I, what I'm what I remember hearing a lot, as, and I don't know exactly what that relationship was, but I know the early speculation is that what people were saying, and I'm interested whether Jen saw the not that. They saw police, and I remember witness reports saying that the cops were doing the shooting, and that, that, that maybe they killed some of the students. Am I wrong in saying? Because I, I remember reading that early on. We well, talked about it, but no, there was only our RSO, our school's resource officer, was the only mm -hmm. one to exchange fire, as far as I saw. And like I said, I was I had a pretty good vantage point of where a lot of the activity was going on that day, and I saw the RSO exchange fire with Dylan in the library and probably um, Eric as well. I didn't get a good look at the other person because only Dylan kind of stuck his head out once enough to see his hair and his hat. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they, they would exchange fire for a very brief amount of time before they stopped. And at that time, it, you know, it had been going on for a while. So I know all the kids in the library were already down on the ground. Anybody standing up was a gunman. So if the, if that RSO shot anybody, they would have to have been standing up and acting like a gunman to have gotten shot. But as far, I didn't hear that anybody was shot by the cops officially. Now, Danny Rohrbaugh, somebody will talk about, some people will talk that he got shot by a cop, but uh, my friend Lance Kirkland was best friends with Danny. They were standing together right outside the cafeteria door, uh, right where Danny's body was found. Uh, I found him there later on. And Lance was trying to help Danny after he got shot. And he didn't realize that he himself had been shot a few times as well. He's holding Danny Rohrbaugh in his hands and he's bleeding out. And he looks up and there's the sun's in his face, so he can't really see who's standing there. And he says, uh, can you help me? I need some help, something along those lines. And then uh, one of the gunmen came Dylan. up. He said that he came up and said, I'll help you. And then shot him in the face with the sawed off shotgun, taking yeah. off a good chunk of his jaw, but not killing him. 
And oh, so yeah. Lance, Lance was a friend of mine. I was close with him for a while after the shooting and when he was going through surgery after surgery on his face. And he told me, you know, he told me who he thought shot them. And it was Eric and Dylan. And those, it was right outside, right when it started. So, right. you know, I, Mr. DeAngelis was supposedly outside there too when he says he was not. But one of my friends, one of my best friends was standing right at the top of the stairs when she said that she was very close to Mr. DeAngelis and uh, Dylan was standing maybe 20 feet away from them and looked at him and opened his trench coat to show his guns, pulled out his gun and then pulled a 180, turned around and then started shooting people, allowing them to run away. The principal. Yep. Yeah, well, and I, the principal I, will say he was somewhere else in the school when he got the news. When my friend said that he was standing outside, yeah. and he also this? said that he said the gunman he saw actually resembled closer to uh, Mr. Spikey here that you saw actually. Yeah, in see, this is there's so much to this. I mean, why would the principal lie about where he was? I have a question for you uh, for email. I guess people know I can't get the chat room, Jen. Uh, what is the guest feeling on what may have been the reason to do this? Your best guest. Um, to inspire more copycats and to influence people's um, behavior and how they live their lives. And, you know, they, they want this huge cause and effect, really. And I've heard people talk about this on a deeper level better than I can explain it, but where they'll create a situation just so that they can get the effect of how people will respond to it. And, and I didn't want, and none of us, one of us survivors wanted us to be where it we wanted it to end with us. We didn't want it to start with us. But now it seems like this is like the guidebook to school shootings. Is this, yeah, is, this is the way this to is, do it. This is how people this, yeah, look up to it and use standard. it as an example. Yeah, exactly. And I, I so see. I think it started a big wave of, you know, different gun laws and different, you just even the, yes, the yes. overall feeling in society based off of guns and things to make us right. not want to, you know, and then we can't even trust our schools. If we're not even safe at our schools, we're not safe in our grocery stores. These schools, these shootings aren't just at schools though, either they're all over right. and it's becoming more and more rampant. And you, you actually knew some people at Aurora too, right? Yeah, one of my best friends was in a uh, theater that night that didn't get shot into, but she was right next to one that bullets were flying in, and she lost one of her good friends. I've also met other survivors of other shootings through um, a group called the Rebels Project. It's mass shooting survivors support group. And wow. so I've got I've got friends from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas out in Florida, and I've yes, got yes, friends from uh, the Las Vegas shooting and other mm -hmm. smaller shootings as well. So yeah, I've got a Vegas I've got a big. Well, I see to, producer Tony Artibert is back at his desk. Tony, is it, did you see anything interesting in the chat room? Because I have not I've not accessed it. I see Tony I there. If you, anything shaking You've in the chat room, Tony? I've been, I've been. It's a great show. I've, I've seen it. All the chat. Rockfin has been very active. You've got a, a donation in the Rockfin chat as well. I'm just even go back and find out who. They oh, are. great! Yeah, I always like to thank people so for that. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> your donations are helping. We got. Uh, I was able to send uh, Don a new laptop this week yes. uh, yes. and uh, a new 
a webcam. Yeah, yeah. So that that'll be on. Hopefully, be on display next week. I've got the web cam and the laptop chadir. So hopefully, that'll make a difference, and I'll actually be able to. Because uh, those of you who listen to my old TFR show know that I like to maybe too much engage in the chat room, but uh, typically I'll be monitoring it and maybe responding too much to it. And that's why my son says it all. I don't think it's too much. I, I'm, <laughs> I, I have a hard time keeping it. You're, you're a master at that. Like you can do the chat room really easy. And I, I have a hard time doing my live show and keeping it. I, I just thought that John Barber also lectured me on that one time. I'm a Donald. You should stop talking to the chat room so much. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a strength. Um, I, I, I hope so. <clears throat> I hope so. But what what would you think when you were listening, Tony? What were you thinking about Jen's uh, story? Well, again, you know, you can learn so much from an eyewitness, and all of these issues, all of these stories. I mean, I was a senior in high school and, and during Columbine, and uh, you know, we we get the official narratives come out, and these are you know, these guys are bullied, and um, they have a subculture and all the rest, and then I mean, it gets. Again, you know, the, the truth of the matter is always uh, opposed to the official narrative because they don't want you asking, um, you know, uncomfortable questions about things like psychotropic drugs or government intervention um, or the state of mind or the motive. It's kind of like, you know, if you go back and look at uh, the prosecution of Manson in the mm -hmm. 60s and they have the helter skelter prosecution and you know they wanted manson wanted to start a race war and all this and then you and you read like tom o'neill's book and uh, on the cia and and uh, and called chaos and you go wow they they really weren't trying to do those things that they were <laughs> they were um, well, even before you know, that with dave mcgowan weird scenes uh, inside the canyon mm -hmm. similar things yeah right so again this is why alternative people like uh, don jeffries and i mean your work is so important because it's it's destroying the official narrative gives people a better understanding of history if you don't understand the past and you can't understand the present no yeah, right and so that's what oh well, and that's why jennifer is so important because uh yeah i don't we don't get to do this very often with somebody i would love to talk to somebody who was at sandy hook or aurora or boston bombing or any of these things i've written about and talked about so it's it's wonderful to get this firsthand experience and you you I know from the few people I've talked to that have been willing to talk about any of these incidents, uh, you sense how 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 that changes your life. Because you, Jennifer, you're you're associated now with uh, a real historical event. So you said Columbine is probably of all the well, maybe Sandy Hooks there now, but I mean Columbine has been like the standard bearer. That's the 9/11 school shootings. Yeah. 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 So I mean, how it, do you feel? You must feel that this has transformed your life. Just the fact that you happened to go to school there at that time. Right. Yeah, definitely. It does. Uh, I don't like it to define me, but it is a part of me and my history, and it has definitely shaped who I am as a person. I haven't let it completely consume me and control my life like some of my peers have, but everybody has grieved and dealt with it in their own ways. Uh, I've just been able to find i've i've gone dark places and done bad things and trying to deal with my pain but i found that the best way to deal with it is to actually allow yourself to go through it and once you do that you can you know be stronger and more empowered when you try to tell your story because like i was saying earlier i really highly value the truth and i think people deserve to know the truth and i think that people like me need to be brave enough to say something 
because there's something going on here that shouldn't be going on. And while I have some answers, I don't have all the answers either. And it's frustrating and it's heartbreaking and downright disgusting in some ways to know that there's a cover-up going on that involved my friend's deaths. And if there's anything that I can do to help my friends rest in peace, then I will do it. Well, that's that's fantastic. Now, in the over the years, when you have met, I, I imagine this is a source of uh, inter- interest uh, to yeah, your, your meeting guys, uh, your start your, at workplace coworkers and stuff. How do you? How is this subject introduced? Because that's kind of a big thing at some point where you know the person in the cubicle next to you, oh, you know, she she was at Columbine. I mean, that how, do you just not mention it much, or how does that how does that work? Uh, it really, I, I've been more open than a lot of my other peers about it. Um, in the earlier years, whenever I'd meet somebody new and getting to know them, they would say, you know, what high school did you go to? That was a common thing in getting to know somebody, especially in Littleton, because it was such a small town that you know, there's probably a chance that you knew them through one other person. And I would tell people, I'll tell you what high school I go, I went to, but after I tell you, you only get two questions, and the answers to both your questions are yes, I was there, and yes, I know people who died. I went to mm-hmm. Columbine. And then I would sometimes I would go off for hours on a tangent talking with them and end up regretting it. Or, you know, sometimes I didn't regret it, but um, I I wasn't as vocal in the beginning in the first, oh, I'd say decade after it happened. But as time went on, um, I became more vocal about it. And especially after I was able to overcome my own PTSD so that I can talk about my story without being in a panic mode. Because, you know, it would easily send me into a panic mode just thinking about it because, I, you know, you're reliving those memories. I have photographic memory. So when I think of a past memory, it's like a video that plays in my mind. And science says that when that happens, your brain doesn't know the difference between the past and present. And it thinks that it's still in that moment. So now I can tell my story without freaking out. That, that's really nice. Well, do, do, you, do you still have to Actually, does anybody know like a, a sketch artist? Because uh, I was telling Jen that we, we might be able to take her photographic memory of this 30-year-old spiky-haired adult shooter suspect and really see. Because, uh, Jen, you said he kind of resembled like a John Cena type. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, kind of with like the the you know muscular build and the really defined cheekbones. But John Cena's face is a little bit more oval, while the guy that I saw was more square face. But yeah, I would love to be able to talk about, to. Uh, what did you hear about uh, who that might have may have been in relation to oh. Eric? From, you know, the uh, former cops and other people that I had talked to over the years, there was a rumor that it was possibly Eric's uncle that I saw that day because Eric's uncle um, was a firefighter for, I believe, Arvada Fire, which is a city just north of Denver. So I don't know if it is. I've never seen a picture of his uncle uh, I don't think I've seen a picture of his uncle, to be sure. But, um, I mean, there is that possibility that it was a relative of his, and that's why they looked similar. But they were definitely different people. The, the scrawny kid and this military guy, just because they both have blondish hair and it's short, you know, 
and they've got a gun in their hand doesn't mean they're the same person. Have you, have you suffered? Really was a fire, if he really was a firefighter, what better way than to just wait until rescue right. comes in and just blend in with the rest of them? And that's how he gets out of the building, if that's well, the you, case. Do, do, are, you, say, you sound like you've come to a, a point of, a, of you know, some peace of mind about it. Did, did you suffer from nightmares? Do you still suffer from nightmares? I mean, I would imagine something like that, that once in a while you dream about it. Yeah, I used to. I used to. Before I overcame my PTSD, I would have nightmares. It was more frequent uh, right afterward in the first year after. Sure. Sure. Um, I still remember some of them vividly to this day because of just how how traumatic that was, those dreams. I dreamt that I went back in time to April 19th, and instead of them doing Columbine, they decided they were going to blow up the elementary school down the street instead and they were uh friends with me for some reason like i was trying to befriend them so i could get to know what they were doing so i could warn other people exactly what was going to happen and when and mm -hmm. it happened too soon in my dream and i remember them telling me uh, climb underneath this car to uh, get away from the explosion and I, you know, I'd be so I was so upset because then little kids are dying in my dream and I can't save uh, anybody. And I I just want to go back. All my dreams were trying to go back in time to try sure, and prevent sure. it and stop it from happening. But once Whoa. I overcame my PTSD, I, uh, that was in uh, when I fully came, overcame it. The concert was October 20th, 2016. And I'd say by. February, maybe March 2017, I was done with my PTSD and retraining my brain. So I stopped having nightmares about it around that same time. What you're doing, you're doing that you, you can't go back in time to change anything, but you're doing the next best thing. You're, you're telling the truth about what you're on. You're maintaining your integrity by hanging to this. I, I really appreciate you. And I know, I know. Chris I'm proud and, of you, Jen. <laughs> Yes, it's, it's your, your profile and courage. Uh, appreciate you coming on. Uh, we're just about out of time. Do you have anything you want to promote or, uh, you know, the floor is yours to sum up however you want. <laughs> um, I really do. Uh, I make and sell um, hanging crystal grids and I also help with plants. I'm known as a plant rescue lady on Facebook. I give away free help on plants and I also uh, sell plants and uh, sometimes seeds, but I also make these crystal art grids that hang on your wall as a piece of artwork, uh, geometric shapes and stuff and these crystals help in different metaphysical ways for love or friendship or you can have them made for any reason really so you know, i put my heart into um building those and a little piece of me goes inside each one so i know that they're going to be loved and everything but it's it's my way of trying to share love and light with the world because there's just so much darkness in this world i've got to find a way to uplift people and this is how i do it absolutely do you have well, a link, link, what was that well, do you have a link to this uh, that people can well, but yeah out? do you have a, a website for the plant lady rescuer it's, it's just on facebook called the plant rescue lady Okay, well, check out the plant rescue a, lady. 
Yeah, I've got a page and I've got a group with that. Uh, the group is where I'm more active and that's where people can also post whenever they need help with anything. Or my favorite part is when they share their updates after I've helped them months ago and their plants are doing <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> well, well, that's great. Je Jennifer Small Thompson, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your story. All the best to you. Chris Grace, thanks for being here. Tony, as always, thanks for producing. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Next week, I'll be able to monitor the chant better, hopefully. Thanks and thanks for the tip and everything. Whatever. Thanks for everybody. I really appreciate your support. See you next week this time on iProtest. Thank you.